Am I on? Yes. Uh, so, oh, I'm loud. That's exciting. Uh, you'll have to excuse me. I have hurt my back and then spent a week running around Disneyland and have done who knows what to my leg and can't really stand up anymore. So uh, I think that I will be speaking from a stool tonight. Um, I think that most people know me. My name's Beth. Uh, if you come to the morning service, you will have seen me jumping around on stage like a lunatic because I am the children's worker here, and apparently that's what children's workers do. Um, but tonight, um, I am talking. So we are looking at John chapter 1 tonight. You might want to find it in your Bible. I'll give you a minute to do that because I know I always find it a bit stressful when someone says what passage it is and then immediately starts to read and you haven't found it yet. Um, So John chapter 1, verse 1 through to 18 is what I'm going to be speaking about. This is actually the start, sort of, of a series Um, on John, and particularly the miracles in John, which is going to start next week. So I've been given the task of introducing us to John. Um, And I think it's fair to say that the first chapter of John is somewhat tricky, confusing, uh, uses a lot of strange language. Um, But actually, it's been really interesting finding out a little bit about what that means and understanding that a little bit better. Uh, So I hope that you think the same thing. So I'm going to read these verses twice. I'm going to read them in the NIV version first, which is the Bible in your pews, and then I'm going to read them in the message because I think these verses are really familiar ones. They're ones that I reckon a lot of us could quote parts of. And I think sometimes when that's the case with Bible verses, we sort of bypass what they actually mean because we know them so well. They're just part of our brain knowledge. We don't really take in the meaning. So this is the NIV version first. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Through him all things were made, Without him, nothing was made that has been made. In him was life, and that life was the light of all mankind. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. There was a man sent from God, his name was John. He came as a witness to testify concerning that light, so that through him all might believe. He himself was not the light, he came only as a witness to the light. The true light that gives light to everyone was coming into the world. He was in the world, and though the world was made through him, the world did not recognise him. He came to that which was his own, but his own did not receive him. Yet to all who did receive him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, children born not of natural descent, nor of human decision or a husband's will, but born of God. The word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory, 
the glory of the one and only Son, who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. John testified concerning him. He cried out, saying, This is the one I spoke about when I said, He who, he who comes after me has surpassed me, because he was before me. Out of his fullness we have all received grace in place of grace already given. For the law was given through Moses, grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God, but the one and only Son, who is his, himself God and is in the closest relationship with the Father, has made him known. And I'm going to read it again from the message, which is quite different. Um, but I think helps us to think a little differently about the passage. The Word was first, the Word present to God, God present to the Word. The Word was God, in readiness for God from day one. Everything was created through him. Nothing, not one thing, came into being without him. What came into existence was life, and the life was light to live by. The lifelight blazed out of the darkness. The darkness couldn't put it out. There once was a man, his name John, sent by God to point out the way to the lifelight. He came to show everyone where to look, who to believe in. John was not himself the light. He was there to show the way to the light. The lifelight was the real thing. Every person entering life, he brings into light. He was in the world and the world was there through him, yet the world didn't even notice. He came to his own people, but they didn't want him. But whoever did want him, who believed he was who he claimed, and would do as he said, he made to be their true selves, their child of God selves. These are God-begotten, not blood-begotten, not flesh-begotten, not sex-begotten. The word became flesh and blood and moved into the neighbourhood. We saw the glory with our own eyes, the one-of-a-kind glory, like father, like son, generous inside and out, true from start to finish. John pointed him out and called, this is the one, the one I told you was coming after me, but in fact was ahead of me. He has always been ahead of me, has always had the first word. We all live off his generous bounty, gift after gift after gift. We got the basics from Moses, and then this exuberant giving and receiving, this endless knowing and understanding, all this came through Jesus, the Messiah. No one has ever seen God, not so much as a glimpse, this one-of-a-kind God expression who exists at the very heart of the Father has made him plain as day. So I think it's fair to say that John begins his gospel in a very different way to the other three gospels. They deal with facts about Jesus's earthly life. They talk about his birth, they talk about his ancestors, whereas John starts by talking about who Jesus was at the beginning of time. It's a very different way to start. It's generally accepted that the Gospel of John was written later than the other three Gospels. There is some evidence to the contrary. It's a bit disputed. Um, but in general, that's what is believed. And that means that it was written with a very different purpose to the other three. Mark was probably the first Gospel to be written, uh, about AD 60 to 70. 
and it was written at a point when a new generation was starting to appear. The baby boomers are still around, but the millennials are starting to grow up and, <laughs> and appear on the scene, and first-hand accounts were getting a bit more difficult to come by. There weren't so many people around who'd witnessed Jesus, who'd witnessed what he'd done, because they were starting to die out. So it was difficult for this new generation to hear things firsthand. Mark was written for a Gentile audience in general, and he set out to show that Jesus was the Son of God, the Lord and Saviour, even though he wasn't around anymore. Matthew was probably written just after Mark, uh, but he wrote for a very Jewish audience, and he was trying to connect Jesus with the Old Testament and to prove that those verses about the Messiah applied to Jesus. Uh, Luke, again, was written most likely around the same time as Matthew, uh, but he was more concerned with producing a historically accurate account. He wanted to prove that the events, uh, the day-to-day things of Jesus' life actually happened and actually were true. Whereas John was written a little later, the other three Gospels would have been really well circulated and well known by the time that John was written, and that meant that John had a certain amount of freedom. He didn't need to go into every single detail of Jesus' life because people already knew, they already knew these accounts really well. And that gave him the freedom instead to focus more on theology and to draw out themes about Jesus's identity and particularly the idea that Jesus was God himself. And the first chapter of John introduces these themes which are then explored throughout the book and it's a really poetic start to the book. It feels quite mysterious, there's a lot of poetic language, it feels a bit abstract And actually, those first five verses could well have been a poem or even a hymn that was sung by early Christians. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Through him all things were made. Without him nothing that was was made that has been made. In him was life, and that life was the light of all mankind. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. The word is a really interesting way to refer to Jesus. In fact, the whole first five verses bring to mind the start of Genesis, God speaking into the darkness and calling out the light. It's a very deliberate parallel, and John is reminding us that Jesus brings around a new creation. And calling Jesus the Word was really evocative language for both Jews and Gentiles. The Greek is logos, which I'm not entirely sure I'm pronouncing correctly, but we'll go with it. Uh, But in Greek philosophy, the cosmic logos The cosmic word were the forces that sustained the universe. Logos was the rational principle that guided the universe, and it made life coherent. But the Greek logos were really distant and remote. 
they were completely separate to the kind of mundane, earthly things, and the two would never encounter each other. So when John talks about the word coming to earth, he deliberately uses the word flesh. He makes it more evocative. It's quite brutal language from a Greek point of view. There's no glory or mystery in plain old flesh and blood. And for Greeks, the two would never collide. But here is this person that brings the two things together. For the Jews, on the other hand, Logos was the word of the Lord. It's referred to throughout the Old Testament uh, and was seen as an expression of God's wisdom and creative power. Often when talking about a prophet, writers would use the language, the word of the Lord came to whichever prophet we happen to be talking about. It's the way God reveals his mind and his purpose. But this, in John, is not just a prophet knowing the word of God. This is something uniquely different, the word himself coming to earth. Matthew Henry wrote, The plainest reason why the Son of God is called the word seems to be that as our words explain our minds to others, so was the Son of God sent to reveal his Father's mind to the world. The light of reason, as well as the life of sense, is derived from him and depends upon him. Throughout the Old Testament, God revealed his mind through his words, through the word of the Lord, and now he sends Jesus as the ultimate revelation of his mind. It says the word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. And quite literally, that translates as pitched his tent among us, or if we want to put it in Jewish language, the word became flesh and tabernacled among us. In the same way that Jesus is a new and better word of the Lord, here he's the ultimate tabernacle, the ultimate dwelling of God with his people, with us. So if the word came to reveal the mind of God, what do we learn of God? As I said, John sets out themes that he'll explore for the rest of his book. The whole book is showing how Jesus reveals the mind and the heart of God. And John even lists what he's going to show us about God in this first chapter. Uh, Verse 11 to 13 says, He came to that which was his own, but his own did not receive him. Yet to all who did receive him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, children born not of natural descent, nor of human decision or a husband's will, but born of God. First and foremost, before anything else, Jesus came to give us the chance to become children of God. It's the first thing in God's mind. And John lists it before he starts talking about the glory of God or grace and redemption. Before anything else, God just wants us to become his children. He wants to love us with the love of a parent, not a parent gone wrong like many of us experience on earth, but a parent who loves perfectly and unconditionally. 
who opens their arms to a child and says, come here, come to me. I get to witness a lot of parents reuniting with their children at pick-up time, and there's just a really special kind of magic about the children who rush to their parents, ready to show them the 50th thing they've crafted that week, or the sticker they got for helping someone else, or the little prize they won for taking part, or for the kids that haven't had such a good day, they run to their parents to tell them about little injustices. They didn't get picked to do the actions today, or to show them the scrape or the bruise or the little hurt that they got. And those children are never ashamed of what they rush to their parents with. Those little treasures are precious to them. And the first thing they want to do is share them with a parent. They know that the thing they've made, even if it's the 50th thing they've made that week, will be special to the parent too, because they're the one who made it. How often do we do that? How often do we run unashamedly to our daddy God with our little achievements. So those parents I see at pick-up time are not comparing their kids' the little clay model to everybody else's. It's already special because it was made by their child. How often do we run with all our little happinesses and our little excitements to God? Do we think they're too small? Do we think they're not as good as everyone else's? And likewise, do we take our little problems to God? Because he wants to know. There's nothing God likes more than hearing about our days. There's nothing that's too small to tell him about. But those kids, above everything else, more than showing them things or telling them things, those kids just want to be with their parents. They're their safe space, the thing that makes them feel like they're home, even when they're not. How often do we experience the same joy at being in the presence of God? Because that is what God wants. That's his intention. And Jesus came to make us children of God. And that means being his child in every sense of the word. John, in verse 14, says, The word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only Son, who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. Jesus came to show the glory of God. If Jesus is the word, and our words reveal our minds and our hearts to others, and Jesus came to reveal God's mind to us, how could he possibly not show God's glory? John carefully chooses seven miracles or signs in his book to show us the glory of Jesus and the glory of God. And as I said, we're going to spend the next few weeks looking at those things, so I'm not going to say much more about them now. Verse 14 again says, Came from the Father, full of grace and truth. The mind of God has always been to reveal the truth to us the truth of his person, and the truth about us and who we were made to be. Jesus is the light that shines in the darkness, and he reveals what is real and true. He extends his grace to us as well. 
It's this grace that allows us to become children of God and to have that relationship with our daddy God. And it is freely given to us. It's revealed through Jesus because it's who God is. There's a theme throughout the first chapter of John of things going full circle. Things that have happened before are happening again in a new way with Jesus. Jesus coming into the world to be a light that shines in the darkness is a new version of, a, of the light that breaks through the darkness at the start of the world. We are reborn and given a new sort of birth through Jesus. Jesus comes to be the new tabernacle, the new dwelling of God with us. And in the same way, the grace that Jesus brings is a new version of the grace that God had already given. Verses 16 and 17 say, Out of his fullness we have all received grace in place of grace already given. For the law was given through Moses, grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. God had already extended his grace through the laws he gave to Moses when he brought his people out of Egypt. But through Jesus, he brings a new kind of grace. Jesus is the fulfillment of the law. The Jews had to bring sacrifices to atone for the things that they had done wrong. But Jesus is the ultimate sacrifice. He's the once and for all sacrifice that brings freedom from the law. That doesn't mean freedom to break God's commandments. It means the freedom of grace and the freedom of a daddy God who we can run to when we get it wrong. So the light of the world, the word of God who reveals God's mind and heart, arrives in the world he created. It's the pinnacle of all creation the defining moment that everything has been leading to and what happens. He was in the world, and though the world was made through him, the world did not recognise him. He came to that which was his own, but his own did not receive him. Jesus came into the world, and it was a world that was in rebellion, a world that loves the darkness. In chapter 3 of John, verse 19 and 20 say this, this is the verdict, light has come into the world, but people love darkness instead of light because their deeds were evil. Everyone who does evil hates the light and will not come into the light for fear that their deeds will be exposed. We fear the light and we run away from it because we're afraid of what it will show up. If a light shines into the darkest little corners of my life, what is going to be seen? But if we think like that, we don't really understand the light. Verse 5 in the NIV says, the light shines in the darkness and the darkness has not overcome it. That word overcome could just as easily be translated as understood, and it is in some versions. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not understood it. Darkness never really understands the light because it doesn't 
really make sense. It doesn't make sense to us that God actually wants all of us, every bright and beautiful thing about us, and every little dark secret corner. We just don't get it. But that's because we don't see ourselves with the eyes of the God who, above everything else, wants to make us his children. We spend so much time looking at ourselves with shame. Remember the image of the little children at the end of Kids Club rushing to their parents, holding the little things that they've made, showing their bumps and bruises. How often are we ashamed of those things or think they're too small for the almighty God? Or maybe think that God won't like us very much if we tell him about them. But that's a lie that the darkness is trying to tell us. Our daddy God loves every small thing we bring to him. He cares about every little hurt. And there's never a little dark corner that would ever make him love us any less. All he wants is to gather us up in his arms and love us. And the things that are important to us are important to him just because there are things and we are precious to him. This is the defining moment of all history, the moment when God himself steps into history. He steps into a world that rejects him and hates him and punishes and beats and kills him. And that is purely because of how special we are to him. I'm going to pray in a sec and then we'll worship some more. But during that time, maybe you want to spend a little bit of time chatting to your daddy God. Showing him the things that you want to show him, however small or big, not very much or really overwhelming. He wants to know those things. Or maybe you just want to spend some time with him, that joy and excitement of just being in his presence, because that is what he wants. He came to earth first and foremost to make us his children, and a parent just wants to spend time with their children. I'm going to pray. Father God, Daddy God, Thank you that you love us completely. That there's no small thing that you don't care about. That our little treasures are your little treasures. And that you love us unconditionally, always. Thank you that you stepped into history. That you came to earth even though you knew it would reject you. No, we would reject you pray that you would be with us this evening, that you would meet us, that you would talk to us, that you would help us to know that you are our Father. Amen.